turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be there. Okay, so shortly after moving to Crozet, which was about seven weeks now, give or take, uh, moved here from Indiana to, uh, to join the leadership team here. Moved here, got settled into a house, kind of got my feet beneath me, and, and our volunteer coordinator, Jeff Helens, invited me to go trail running or hiking or walking or, or doing something with them at Mint Springs Park. And I was like, okay, this is cool. You know, Jeff wants to hang out, which is always good. I need to make new friends, and, and I love the outdoors, so okay, why not? It's fun, right? See, I thought in my, my youthful foolishness, I guess perhaps I was a bit naive, I thought that Jeff, I thought that he liked me. I thought, okay, he wants to hang out. He wants to be friends. And then about five minutes up, up the mountain, I realized the, the horrible truth that Number one, Jeff doesn't like me at all. <laughs> Number two, he must want me gone, and this is his way of running me out of Crozet. All right, Mint Springs is not a leisure walk. It hurts. But uh, it's, it's better now. It, it's better now than it was that first trip up the hill. We do it about three times a week. I'm sure he'd love to take other people with him, but uh, it's easier now. It, it's fun. But, uh, but it's still hard. And I had a revelation the other day as, as I was going up there, and I realized that me and Jeff, we've got two totally different ways of, of approaching this thing. Because uh, I don't know if you can tell it or not, but I'm not a fitness guru. All right, so my idea of going up Mint Springs is doing this, you know, panting, gasping, wheezing thing where I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other, all right, and I typically keep my head down because not this is what I told Jeff. He can confirm this. I said the trick is to lean so far forward that you've got to put your foot in front of you or you're going to face plant. All right, so it was kind of a forced hike up the hill. Typically, I didn't even look in front of me because the few times that I did, when I could see the trail just going up still, I lost my resolve to, you know, to tackle this thing. But Jeff, Jeff is different. Jeff's a weird one. He's probably the earthling right now, too, because I never told him that, that I was going to be talking about him this morning. But Jeff is different. I mean, the way that he approaches this trail, you know, he carries this gorilla, gorilla, grizzly bear strength pepper spray. All right, so he's got his pepper spray hanging off his hip. He's usually leading the way, seldom ever lagging behind, and he's just going through this, enjoying the exercise, but he's scanning the environment around us because Jeff doesn't want us to be barefoot. All right, Jeff has got to do that part for us because, like I said, I'm doing this pant and wheezing, gasping thing. I'm no good for looking out for anything. I was this close last week to putting a Facebook status that, that read, I'm glad that I was not predestined to meet a bear this morning because it would have been predestined to eat me. All right, this trail hurts. But then I was like, well, I'm going to get a lot of feedback from people that tell me that black bears don't eat people. So I just kind of left that out of there. But but Jeff is different. He approaches this trail with an attitude that's weird. I mean, he's, he's happy, he's hurting, he's clapping his hands loudly to make sure that the bear hears us before we see the bear. But he's, he's just weird. All right? We hit the trail one day a couple weeks ago, and it was raining before we got there, and it was raining when we left. All right, the entire time we're on this hill, it's raining. And then Jeff's kind of running while holding his T-shirt out to here because he doesn't want to get his phone drenched. And so I'm lagging behind him, staring straight down, and I hear him saying weird things like, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. 
All right, now I don't know if he's so holy that it doesn't rain where he stands, but I am getting drenched, I'm getting cold, my legs hurt, I can't breathe, and he's like, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful morning. All right, he's weird. But it dawned on me as I'm watching this from behind, of course, because he's in front of me pulling me behind him, but it dawned on me that Jeff kind of looks exactly like the ministry of an Old Testament prophet. Because there couldn't have been a more clear contrast between me struggling, miserable, staring down, wanting to go home, miserable, just focused on myself. And then there's Jeff, kind of looking around, seeing the broader scope of things having a proper attitude towards God about it. And the Old Testament prophets work the same way. Because typically God's people just like to focus inward and look at the things happening around them without paying too much attention to what's going on outside of their bubble or even to what's going on between them and God. But the Old Testament prophets were different. One of them was Isaiah. Little is known about Isaiah, though we do know that he received his calling, his vision from God, in the year around 740 B.C. All right, it was the same year that King Uzziah died. Many of us are familiar with the story. I'm not really going to go into detail. You can look it up in Isaiah chapter 6. But Isaiah received this vision from God that kept him radically focused, not on his present circumstances, not on his surroundings, but really focused on God and looking off the horizon towards the greater scheme of things. Malachi was another such prophet. 200 years after Isaiah's day, God comes to Malachi and says, I want you to deliver this message to Judah. So as we follow the Old Testament narrative, and we see these prophets, they are men, sometimes women, typically men, of God who just kind of stand in the gap between people who were focused inward and then the God who was interacting with us. The Old Testament prophets were weird Some 200 years, like I said, after approaching Isaiah, God comes to Malachi, and he delivers to Malachi a little little bit of a message. All right, now here's the weird part, because Malachi has a little piece of this puzzle, and then Isaiah, 200 years before, has another little piece of this puzzle. But we find in the New Testament that both of them were designed to work in tandem to create for us a larger picture. The prophecy that's mentioned by Isaiah and then supplemented by Malachi is not simply about the Messiah. All right? It's not just that God is going to bring a Redeemer for His people. God had been talking about that since Genesis chapter 3. And so they're not just talking about the coming Messiah, but now we begin to see from the pages of Scripture that there was going to be a forerunner. There was going to be this preacher, this prophet, this man of God who was going to deliver a message on behalf of God to us. So you can imagine the deafening silence that goes after God speaks through Malachi and then there's about 400 years of silence. 400 years. I mean, we can't really wrap our minds around that. Imagine having daily contact with God here in the United States of America and then going the next 400 years without hearing anything. All right, so you can imagine that God's people are probably starting to wonder, why isn't God speaking through the prophets anymore? Why doesn't God have a word for his people? But then the prophecy is fulfilled. The messenger arrives, and his name is John. 
Now Mark has no doubt that John is this messenger to whom the prophets speak of. He says in his word, Mark chapter 1, verse 2, he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now the fascinating thing that Mark is doing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he has taken these two pieces of prophecy. This one down here is Isaiah. The top part is Malachi. He's putting them together and then explaining to his readers that this is all one picture. And then he, you know, he attributes it to Isaiah because Isaiah is the more dominant of the two prophets. Common practice back then. But Mark tells us, no, these two pieces that are given to two different prophets 200 years apart are to be understood like this. And he's talking about this man named John. He says, John appeared. So he sets the background really quick. As it was prophesied in the prophets, there's a forerunner. Boom. John appeared. Moves that quickly. Now, you need to know that even though this is Mark's first mention of John, we can go to the other synoptic gospels. We can go to Matthew. We can go to Luke and get a little bit of supplementary information. So even though this is the first time in Mark we see John, this isn't the first place in Scripture we find him. If you were to read through Luke chapter 1, you would see an amazing story of how John came to be and some of the things that happened when he was a child. Uh, One of the cool parts is that John, this guy here, he's actually related to Jesus. See, John's mother Elizabeth was a whole lot older than Mary, who was Jesus' mom, but Scripture tells us they were related. I don't know if they were distant cousins, perhaps an an aunt or a great aunt, but we know that they're related. So he grows up related to this Jesus figure, has no clue who he is. But we know that John's an odd one from the get-go. Because when John's mom Elizabeth was pregnant with John, who even then was full of the Holy Spirit, Mary comes over to tell Elizabeth that she's now pregnant with Jesus. You follow the story? Here's Elizabeth, six months pregnant, older lady. Here's Mary, younger lady, just found out that she's been supernaturally impregnated by God somehow. And so she goes to tell Elizabeth, and when Mary says, yo, what's up, to Elizabeth, Scripture tells us that John the Baptist, as a six-month-old fetus, leapt for joy just hearing the sound of Mary's voice. All right, so John is a strange one. According to Luke, John eventually grew, became strong in spirit. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 80. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. All right, so he has this supernatural birth. Seriously, you should read Luke chapter 1 later and get all the pieces. And then he grows and just kind of isolates himself from society until we fast forward some 30 years later. And now John appeared in the wilderness, baptizing, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now we need to park it right there a bit because something unusual and amazing is beginning to happen. The concept of baptism, it wasn't entirely unusual in John's day. For one reason, it was typically the route by which a Gentile, a non-Jew, kind of entered into Judaism. They, They became a proselyte by way of baptism. But it also wasn't totally unusual for Jews to be baptized either, at least partially. 
because the Jews would have this symbolic sprinkling, you know, just a way of saying, okay, I've got a little bit of sin, so let's get a little bit of water, and we're good to go. But that's not what is happening here, because John isn't just splashing water. The word baptize that we have here in the English, it's basically a transliteration of the Greek baptizo, which means to immerse. All right, so you'll find out through our membership class, one of the reasons that we baptize by immersion is because the word means to immerse. So John was known as John the Immerser, John the Baptizer, not John the Baptist because he went to First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. But what he did was he submerged these people. And then we see that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him several miles out of the way here and being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, so one of the cool things that we see here is that we have not just Gentiles, though some of them may have been there, but we see Jews who are willing to be completely submerged in water, confessing their sins, and demonstrating this repentance for their sins. When a Jew subjects himself to the same kind of baptism that a Gentile would experience, Basically, what they're saying is that they are so wicked in here that they are as far away from God as Gentiles were. Because remember, you've got the Jews who were God's chosen people, and then you had everybody else. And so these Jews that were coming to John and being baptized in this baptism of repentance were basically saying, yeah, I understand I'm a Jew, but I'm so wicked in here that I might as well be completely separated from God. So clearly the Spirit of God was beginning to move among people convicting them of their wrongfulness before a holy God. Think back a second about the work of the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. What was the function of this forerunner? He was to prepare the way of the Lord to make his paths straight. All right, I gotta, I gotta tell you this story because most of you know that I'm an avid hunter or at least an attempted hunter. I love the outdoors. September 1st, a few weeks ago, was the opening day of squirrel season here in the beautiful state of Virginia. I live in a townhouse, so unless I want to make a whole lot of people angry, I can't squirrel hunt in my backyard. I mean, I could, but like I said, it's going to make a whole lot of people angry. And so Sarah was at the beach. My wife Sarah, she was at the beach with her parents, had the kids with her. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to drive up to Rapidan Wildlife Management Area. It's the closest land that I could hunt, opening day of the season. I was itching to just hit the woods. And so I drive the hour to get there, and then I find out, Okay, it's an hour just to get to the base of this mountain. All right, I'm nowhere yet near where I can actually get out of the car and hunt. And so I continue going, and I realize that I'm in trouble when I pass a sign that says, End of State Maintenance. And sure enough, the asphalt disappeared and it became dirt. All right, I drive a 2003 Saturn L200. All right, not exactly four-wheel drive. And so I am making my way just basically crisscrossing up the side of this mountain, no guardrails, no asphalt, trying to figure out, okay, I can see where the ruts are in the road, trying to figure out the best way to attack it because I don't want to destroy my suspension. I don't want to bust an axle on these boulders that are sitting on what could loosely be called a road. Amazingly, I did not meet another car coming down because one of us would have either had to back down it in reverse or back up it in reverse. There was very few places for two vehicles to pass each other. And I'm not exaggerating a bit when I tell you it took me 25 minutes to go the remaining three or four miles just to get where I could park my car, sit in the rain miserably for 90 minutes, and then turn around and come back home, 
come down the mountain and then hit Charlottesville traffic because there was a game that day. And yeah, uh, not, not my funnest of days. But uh, it would have been so much easier, so much smoother for me to get to where I wanted to be if the road was paved, if the ruts were filled in, if the boulders were removed, if it was just asphalt the entire way from inside the Shenandoah National Forest, you gotta get through that just to get to this hunting area. But that's kind of the same function that John here is serving for the coming Messiah. See, back then it was customary in that day to roll out the proverbial red carpet for royalty that was coming into town. All right, they would have road crews out there. They would be shaving down the high spots on the road. They would be filling in the low areas so that when this king and his entourage arrived, they could just roll straight through, not have to do a whole lot of detouring, and just get where they wanted to be nice and peaceful. How many of you were in Charlottesville today, uh, that Wednesday that President Obama was coming into town? All right, if you weren't out of Charlottesville by 2 o'clock, you were in trouble because they shut down 29 from way up on this end all the way down to here. All right, they had policemen, uh, policewomen at every intersection just ready to stop traffic so that the presidential uh, motorcade could just pass straight through without any, any kind of glitches. It's the same thing that John is doing here. All right, he is preparing this way for the coming Messiah. Now, how is he going to do this? Mark tells us in verse 6, we see that John is going to be doing this in the same fashion that the Old Testament prophets did in the way of Elijah. So he's doing this not just based on his message, not just based on his being out there in the wilderness, but in part also because of the way he's dressed. All right, look at this guy. He says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. All right, I'm going to rip Matt Chandler off here because he said this is proof that John was a homeschooler. All right, he's wearing animal skins and eating bugs. Now, I was homeschooled, so I'm allowed to say that. But this guy is just dressed weird. But that's nothing unusual because God's prophets oftentimes dressed funny or acted funny or ran around naked for a few years just to communicate a point from God, which is interesting. Because too many of us believe that we need to be just like our culture to reach our culture. We think that perhaps we need to fit in with everyone around us so that perhaps we can become buddies with them and then present the gospel to them. But it seems that sometimes God's plan is to make him so radically different, to make us so radically different from our culture that people can see, okay, there's something different about this person. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. And this was clearly one of those times. We see uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, when you supplement this, this person of John the Baptist, that his message in part is this. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, so you have John, miles from civilization, dressed like a madman, preaching to people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, at Life Journey Church, you are going to hear us preach this concept of repentance quite often, as we should, because Jesus said, unless you repent, you will also perish. All right, so repentance is vital, but if we're going to preach repentance as Scripture does, then we need to make sure that the definition that we use is a biblical definition. All right? Repentance is not simply feeling sorry 
because you've sinned. All right, I can speak from personal experience. I have been sorry before that I've been caught, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm sorry for what I did. So repentance isn't simply feeling bad because there are a lot of reasons to feel bad that might not be biblical. Repentance doesn't simply mean, okay, well, I'm going to stop doing these things over here that I enjoy doing because, well, God says I can't do it, so I'm going to just cross this out of my life and oh, I'm going to start doing some good things because God says do it. All right, that's not repentance either. All right, simply mechanically forcing yourself to stop doing the sin that you love and to start doing the good things that you don't really want to do, that, that's not repentance. That's called playing church. It's called playing Christianity. Repentance, biblically defined, in as much as we can simply define repentance, simply means to have a change of mind. Or as I like to say, a change in your grip of reality, where you can see the real reality, when you can see God for how holy and pure and perfect He is, and then contrast that with yourself, who you now realize is wicked, fallen, depraved, and separated from God. You have to have a proper understanding of who God is, of who you are, and in turn, see sin the way God sees sin. So that now you're no longer doing this, not because you still want to do it, but because you don't even want to do it anymore. Because you know that God hates it, and you hate hurting God. And then you begin to start doing these things over here, not to make God love you anymore, because there's nothing we can do that's going to cause God to love us. Not to earn our salvation, because there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It's a gift that God gives But we do these things because now, instead of enjoying sin and hate and righteousness, when we have experienced repentance, this gift from God, this act of grace, we don't even want this stuff anymore. And now we are driven to do the things of God in a response to the goodness that God has showed us. So John's not telling the people, feel bad for your sin because God hates sin. He's saying, realize that because of who God is and who you are, that you are woefully separated from God. And it was penetrating in here. And they were being baptized as their way of saying, I agree. All right, I am wrong. Now some people would watch. Some people just kind of sat back and, and watched the show and you know maybe talked to their buddies about it. But some people were genuinely convicted in being baptized. So John is preaching this message of repentance. He's urging those within earshot, both those who he's baptized, those who have not yet been baptized, Gentiles, Jews. He's telling everybody, see your sin the way God does. And then he warns. He says this. He says, after me, after all of this is said and done, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. All right, now we need to unpack that a little bit because it sounds, if we're not careful, it sounds like John is simply saying, I'm not even worthy to carry this guy's suitcase. All right, if you've got any kind of, uh, you know, if you've ever been to Bible school or seminary or you talk, I mean, that, that's something that, that seminary students say. Well, my Greek prof knows more than, or he's forgotten more than I'll ever know, or, you know, I'm not even worthy to carry this guy's jacket. Or, you know, we, we make boastful statements. But that's not what John is doing. Because back then, the only thing that a rabbi could not expect his disciples to do, because a rabbi could ask anything of his disciples. If you wanted to follow a teacher, 
if you wanted to become their disciple, then basically you were submitting yourself to everything they could ask of you. They could command you to leave your family, as Christ did. They can command you to leave your occupation, your means of income. They could ask anything they wanted of one of their followers with the exception of taking their shoes off. Because that act was so humiliating that it was reserved for the servants, for the slaves. In fact, one commentator said the only thing that really differentiated a disciple and a slave was the one prohibition against taking their shoes off. And so when John here says that I'm not even worthy to undo his strap, he is quite literally saying I am nothing to this guy. Even if I was a slave, I wouldn't be worthy to take his shoes off. And so he's presenting this contrast between him and the one who is to follow him. And then he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And if you go to Matthew, Matthew fills this out to where he sees the entire message of John. John says, he, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. Talking about this coming Messiah. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so here's John's message to everyone that's around him. He's saying, hey guys, he's coming, all right? The anointed one is coming. I'm not even worthy to undo his shoes. And when he comes, he's going to separate people. He's going to look at you, and if you are repentant, if you are one of his, then he is going to draw you away and put you over here. He will protect you. He will save you. He will redeem you. And if you are over here and you remain unrepentant, if you refuse to acknowledge your sinfulness, if you are still so full of arrogance that you don't acknowledge the proper reality between you and God, he's also going to separate you over here and you will spend an eternity in fire. So John's message of repentance wasn't just feel bad for your sin. His message was look at God, look at yourself, repent, turn your back on all of it, see reality for what it is, and pursue God. It's the same message that is given to us today. Now the interesting thing that we see here is we're already seeing the reality that simply being a Jew did not guarantee one's salvation. All right, there are still a whole lot of people on this planet today that think that just because they were born of the family of Abraham, that they're good simply on the basis of their birth. But John here 2,000 years ago is saying, uh-uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, what is your heart's attitude between you and God? You embraced reality. And so this is where we enter the story, all right, because we weren't there we weren't there 2,000 years ago when John began this baptism of repentance. We weren't there as shortly thereafter Jesus appeared on the scene identifying himself as the Messiah. John undeniably recognizes him as the Messiah. Walt's going to get more into that next week. It's going to be a great, a great message. But we weren't there. All right? We weren't there when Jesus spent the next three, three and a half years on earth perfectly fulfilling the law healing people, loving people, raising people from the dead, and preaching the kingdom of, of God. We weren't there when Jesus was arrested on charges of blasphemy because he identified himself as the Son of God. We weren't there when they beat him beyond recognition, when they ripped his beard out, when they took this crown of thorns and shoved it on his head. 
We weren't there as He hung on the cross bearing the wrath of His Father against sin. All right, we weren't there when the Roman centurion looked at this and said, truly, this is the Son of God. We weren't there when they took Jesus' destroyed body off the cross and they put it in the tomb and rolled a stone in front of it. And we weren't there when on the third day Jesus came back to life, moved the stone out the way, and jumped out, proven that He is indeed the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Son of God. We weren't there as Luke records for us in Acts that Jesus spent the next 40 days after this appearing to His people, preaching the kingdom of heaven. And we weren't there when after 40 days, Jesus just standing before a crowd of followers just kind of said, hey, see you later. Scripture tells us that He just rose towards the heavens until He was no longer visible. But the story doesn't end there. Because Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 10, that as people are watching Jesus disappear from sight, two angels who are among them say this. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. He's coming again. He's coming back. And when He does, will be when John prophesied that He's going to separate His people from those who are not His people. So this is where we enter the story. Because we've got to figure out, okay, what side of this thing am I on? So as our musicians make their way forward, my question for you is, is this. What have you done with Jesus? Do you value Him more than anything else you've got? Do you find Him precious? Do you believe that He is the Son of God, that He is your only hope of salvation from your sinful rebellion against God? You should know this morning that simply being here I mean, it's great that you're here in this gathering. But simply being here doesn't make you a Christian any more than, as it said, any more than being in the garage makes you a car. All right? I can go inside a gym all day long. It doesn't make me a bodybuilder. And so being here is great, but simply being here does not make anyone a Christ follower. It's not about being here. It's not about nodding your assent to a set of historical facts and saying, okay, yeah, I believe that. All right? Satan believes the gospel. He knows it all happened. It's not just simply nodding your head and saying, yeah, okay, I can buy into that. It's about coming to that place in your life where you're finally ready to let go, to stop your rebellion, to get rid of that proudfulness that just kind of keeps you separated from God. It's about coming to that place where you realize, man, I'm lost. All right, it's that place in your life where you're at the end of the rope and you realize, man, there is not a thing in the world I can do to rescue myself. I can't be good enough. I can't put enough money in the plate at church. I can't go to enough community group meetings. I can't fool myself any longer. It's about coming to that place of repentance where you see reality and it breaks you. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe for the first time ever, sometime in the course of sitting here, listening to truth, either through the music, through the preaching of God's Word, maybe you're sitting here and you're experiencing that for the first time ever. Alright, that's repentance. The Bible says you lack one thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him as your Savior and you will be saved.
Are you ready to do that this morning? week before last, I wanted Sarah and the kids to, to enjoy the view from Mint Springs that I had enjoyed with Jeff. And me and Jeff, typically, we go up the back side of this mountain, and then on the way back down, there's a little bench, a log bench that just kind of overlooks this beautiful, beautiful scenery. But I wanted Sarah and the kids to see this, and so we go up the short way, uh, which is also the easier way, to go enjoy this view. And so I'm carrying Graceland. I've got her in this little papoose thing, and Uriah, he's walking behind me and you know, stuffing his pockets full of acorns. Uh, don't ask me why, but I mean, they were out to here. He wanted to throw them into a lake. And so I was pretty impressed that he was thinking that far ahead because we were nowhere near the lake. But Sarah is walking behind him, and, and so I'm talking to Graceland and you know, trying to make her a little outdoors girl. But I'm also looking around, all right, because I've got my kids with me now got my wife with me. I don't want to walk up on a bobcat or a bear cub or anything that's going to put them in danger. And so, you know, I'm scanning, but I'm also walking and I'm having fun and I realize, wow, I've turned into Jeff. You know, I'm, I'm leading, you know, I'm looking out for, for the betterment of my family. And so perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you are a Christ follower. My question for you is this. What are you doing? What are you doing to share the good news with your friends? To act as John the Baptist in a way where you can proclaim the once again coming Messiah. Where you can warn them that when Christ returns, those who are His will be spared. Those who are not will be damned. When are you going to share with your friends the good news that on the cross Christ guarantees salvation to anyone who will simply come to that point in their life and say, okay, I can't do it. I need you, God. And so our journey marker this week is really simple. Forerunning, like John the Baptist, or forerunning, as in like I'm all forerunning the other way. Which one are you going to be? Are you going to be that voice in the wilderness? Are you going to be the one that's not scared to look different from your peers? Because it's real easy. It's really easy in our workplace, in our families, to not want to have a disruptive faith. All right, yeah, I believe in Christ. But I know that if I start sharing it, people are going to look at me funny. All right, isn't it worth it to look like a fool? if in the end you see them graciously saved because you shared the gospel with them, because you were obedient to God's call on your life? Are you willing to be ridiculed for your faith, or do you just want to kind of bury it? And so as Craig leads us in this time of response, we can all take action this morning. We've got some leaders here. Walt's going to be up here in the front somewhere. We're going to have some other leaders. If you need to talk to somebody about salvation, about what it means to truly trust Christ as your Savior, We've got people here that are willing to stay as long as needed to talk with you. If you want to talk more about what it means to share the gospel, anything that's going on in your life, we've got people here who will talk with you. If you want to respond to God from the quietness of your seat, that's fine too. But if you go ahead and stand, we're going to pray, and then we're going to enter this time of response. However the Holy Spirit is leading you to respond, I would encourage you to respond. So, Father, as we enter now this short time of of response, I pray, Father, that you would take the word that was planted, that you would let life spring out of it.
Father, I pray for those that may be here that don't know your son, that are just kind of skeptical. You know, maybe they were invited by a friend or they were just curious. Lord, if there's somebody here with questions, I pray that you would bring them to us. Lord, I pray that even even before that, that you would just open their eyes to the truth. They've heard the gospel, Lord. Now they just need to embrace it. But Father, there's some here this morning, like myself, who it, it's, it's tough for us to be outgoing and to share our faith without fear of ridicule. But Father, I pray that you would help us to take heart from the example of John the baptizer, who was not ashamed to be unlike his culture to be unlike anyone else around him so that he could proclaim the coming Messiah. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us opportunities this week where we can share our faith with those around us. Father, I pray that in this time you would transform our hearts, our way of thinking. It's in Christ's name we pray.